Well, if you have your Bible, uh, turn me to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be covering verses 27 through 30. This is week four of our series through Philippians, a series that will, uh, at least according to my planning, take us for about 12 weeks total. Sometimes when I get into the text in my sermon prep, I realize that there's, there's more there that can adequately uh, be covered in one sermon, so we may uh, spread it out a little bit, but it'll probably be about 12 weeks, and this morning a, a short section, verses 27 through 30. Last Sunday, I guess it was evening, it was almost dark, I went out to my back porch and sat in the glider and just sat there practicing uh, the discipline of silence and solitude for a little bit, just sort of staring uh, at my, my neighbor's backyard. And Janine had just left for work. Uh, she worked 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. And so just sort of sitting there reflecting, uh, spending, again, quiet time with the Lord. And then, I guess kind of out of boredom, I clicked on the news app of my phone and uh, to be candid, I don't really watch the news, I hardly ever pay attention to the news. If something gets to me, it's usually a pretty big deal. But I looked at the news and I started to scroll through the events going on in our country. And um, I guess I was pretty stunned really at the, the division. I know there's been division, but I didn't realize it was just how starkly the lines had been drawn, the violence, the hatred, uh, the tension. And so, you know, I started thinking about those things and praying about those things, and, and they just kept going on in my mind. I, I, I didn't fall asleep until probably 2 a.m., and when Janine got home at 7.30, 7.45 a.m., I thought about whining to her that I hadn't slept. Uh, it had taken me a long time to fall asleep, but since she had been up all night caring for a gravely ill patients, that seemed a little uh, selfish to me, so I just kind of kept to myself. Um, you know, see how much I've matured. I normally would have complained and whined that I didn't sleep, but kept it to myself, and, um, and I wasn't worried, I wasn't afraid, you know, but what kept coming in my mind, really two questions, how do we as a church remain unified in a time of really such division? And the second question was, how do we stand out? How can we as a, as a church stand out in the middle of this sort of turbulent season in our country? And Now, fortunately for us, the Apostle Paul will answer both of those questions this morning, the passage that we're in. And in fact, the, the real thrust of it, of the passage is, the question he answers is, what does it mean to be a gospel-worthy church in a time of crisis? And we're going to see four ways, I know it's not very Baptist to me to have four points, but four points, four ways that, that a church can stand out as a gospel-worthy church in a time of crisis. So let me begin uh, by reading the text, first, or, uh, Philippians rather, chapter 1 verses 27 through 30. And if you don't have a Bible, the words will appear on the screen behind me. This is the word of the Lord. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. And that from God, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So Paul's writing in prison. We, we talked about this last week, a couple weeks. That he's in prison in Rome, and because he's a Roman citizen, he's treated a little differently than other, citizens, than other prisoners might be. But he's still shackled to a Roman, uh, Roman guard. 
He still is dependent upon his, his fellow believers to bring him supplies, to bring him food, nourishment, and so on. Um, but he's languishing in this space that he can't leave, and he writes this letter. Now, it's easy for us, you know, because we work through the letter one section at a time, because you can't really preach a whole letter, four chapters in one Sunday. It's easy for us to forget that this actually was meant to be heard and processed all at once in one sitting. So we don't want to take what we, we look at today apart from what we've already seen in this letter. And last week we saw that the Apostle Paul, he says, he, he has great confidence that he won't be ashamed of the gospel. Now, now, he doesn't mean by that necessarily that he's going to be bold in his witness and he has confidence he'll never deny Christ. That's part of it. But mainly what he's saying is, I know that whether I'm released or whether I'm condemned to die, whether I'm condemned as a prisoner, a guilty prisoner, when I stand before God, I will not be ashamed. I will be declared not guilty before God because of the work of Jesus Christ. And then he says, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Now the phrase, let your manner of life, is actually only one Greek word. New Testament was written in Greek, and it's, it's a word that Paul hardly ever uses. It's a Greek word, polituomai. Sounds like politics. It's a word that, that is political. It's a word that's military in nature. And what it means is to live as a good citizen. It means to faithfully discharge your duties as a good citizen. But when Paul adds the phrase, worthy of the gospel... He reveals to the Philippians, he's not talking about being a good citizen of Rome. Philippi, though it was actually not in Rome or Italy, it was a Roman colony. Um, Paul is reminding them of their higher citizenship, which is in heaven. The concept of citizenship was a big deal to the Philippians. And um, the way that it worked was just because you were born in Philippi didn't mean that you were necessarily a Roman citizen. Um, citizenship had to be conferred upon you. And it usually worked like this. If you were part of the most prominent, wealthy families, you were conferred citizenship. You were made a citizen. Or if you were a part of the military, a, fom- a former soldier, you were made to be a citizen. But not everybody who lived in Philippi was a citizen. So if you were a citizen, it was a big deal. And when people would talk about being a citizen of Rome, if you were a citizen, You might be puffed up, have your chest out, or stand up even taller or more straight because this was a big deal. But then Paul goes and he kind of flips the script on. He says, I'm not really talking about being a citizen of Rome here. I'm talking about being a citizen of heaven. And just like being a citizen of Rome, being a citizen of heaven brings with it certain privileges, a certain status, and certain obligations. Now, this was radical stuff, this idea that their citizenship was not primarily to Rome, but to the kingdom of heaven. It was radical stuff, and and I think it's fair to say it's radical now. This book is not a story about a country. This is about a kingdom. This is, see, you and I, we're, we're not first and foremost citizens of America. If you put your faith in Christ, you are ultimately and first and foremost a citizen of a new kingdom, and that is the kingdom of God. See, what happens when a person puts his or her faith in Jesus is their citizenship is transferred from this world or this realm, 
which is sometimes called the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of this present age, to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. In another letter, the, the same apostle writes this, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So those who are brought into that kingdom by faith are then called to live a certain way. Paul says they they live in a way that's actually a manner that's worthy of the gospel. There was a trend which began, as far as I can tell, it was the early 80s. It's the first that I detected it. But when a lot of churches were talking about living out the gospel, and you've probably heard this, I've heard it, I'm sure that I've said it, living out the gospel. And in fact, it was such a trend that this became the mission statement for a lot of churches. Our mission is to live out the gospel. Now, there are certainly far worse mission statements, okay? There was one a few years ago where a church posted on their website banner, and uh, their mission statement it was, um, if you worship me, all of this will be yours. Well, that's actually what Satan said to Jesus in the wilderness. So whatever your mission statement is, you don't want it to be written by the devil, okay? So so there are worse mission statements than live out the gospel. But the phrase live out the gospel is problematic. Uh, It's problematic. You can't really live out the gospel. The biblical gospel is an announcement of specific news, namely the news concerning the historical events about Jesus Christ, His birth, His obedient life, His death on a cross, His ascension, His resurrection, His ascension, His impending return. The gospel is news about Jesus, what God has done and is doing to buy back a broken and sin-cursed world through the person and work of His Son. So what happened is, in response to 20 years ago or 30 years ago, whatever, a lot of churches saying we're living out the gospel, a number of pastors and theologians have come along and written or said, you don't really live out the gospel. The gospel is news. Ligon Duncan and Al Mohler and Tim Keller and Michael Horton and uh, Vody Bauckham. In fact, Vody Bauckham has a sermon that kind of went viral in which he really sort of uh, takes issue with this. It was Bauckham who said this in, in this sermon clip, for me to say... I'm going to live out the gospel is like me saying, I'm going to live out the front page story of the newspaper yesterday. It would be like turning on the news and there's a bunch of people out there just sort of living their lives and somehow you're supposed to determine what the news is. So now don't get me wrong, if, if, if you have a friend who goes to a church and their mission statement is we live out the gospel, don't call them, don't call their pastor and say, that's not even biblical. My point is that the the gospel has to be proclaimed, articulated, because it is new. So you can't live out the gospel, but, Paul says, you can live in light of the gospel, Galatians 2. You can live in a manner worthy of the gospel, Philippians 1. But what does that even mean? Well, Paul will explain in this passage. Look at verse 27 again. Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now notice the language that Paul uses here. Standing firm, what? In one spirit. 
Then he says, with one mind. And finally, striving side by side for faith in the gospel. And three very pointed ways, again, using sort of military uh, imagery, Paul talks about the importance of unity among God's people. But it's not just unity for the sake of unity. It's unity for the sake of the advancement of the gospel. Here's our first point this morning as it relates to a gospel-worthy church in a time of crisis. A gospel-worthy church is unified in its singular mission to advance the gospel for the glory of God. Now think about for a moment all the things that threaten the unity of the church. Think about the things that threaten the unity of our church. Masks or no masks. This is a huge deal. This is a very polarizing issue. And I've had people reach out to me. They're very frustrated that everybody's not wearing masks. I've had people reach out to me very frustrated that anybody's wearing masks. So this is a very polarizing issue. This could threaten to divide us. Um, think about this. Uh, Trump 2020 or never Trump. Okay, we have people, people in my neighborhood, people in our church, who are very strongly on, on either side. Um, Kids should go back to school or let's do school virtually. People very polarized on this issue. Kneel for injustice or stand for the flag? A very polarizing issue. There are so many things. There are, and I, that, that was just a few. There are so many things that could threaten the unity of the church. What could possibly bring together and unite people of different perspectives, opinions, backgrounds, races, ethnicities, family, whatever? What could unite in a word? It's mission. Mission. A church that is unified in bringing the gospel to people who live in darkness doesn't have time to divide over masks. A church that is unified in seeing the gospel sanctify God's people doesn't have time for endless debates. My friend, uh, Dr. Brent Whitefield, who preached here, I don't know, maybe nine months ago, He's fond of saying, if you're sitting around fighting over political or philosophical issues, you're not on mission. And the cure to infighting, get back on mission. I was in my office the other day. I had a counseling appointment, and then I had a one-hour break, and then I had another appointment later in, in the evening. And so I wanted to quickly go grab dinner, and I went to a restaurant that I Googled it later. That's 3.4 miles from my office door. And in, the, in that drive from my office to the restaurant, 3.4 miles, I saw, I saw 10 new apartment complexes being built. Brand new apartment. We're talking about hundreds, maybe thousands of people who are going to be new to this area, many of which don't know Jesus, many of which are not reconciled to God. Now, some will be transfers from local areas. Some may come from other parts of the country. You know how it is in Huntsville. My na- I have neighbors. The neighbor on one side of me is from Virginia, across the street from New Jersey, someone from California, a street over, uh, people from all over. Could be people from all over. If we're really concerned about, and I know we are as a church, reaching people with the good news of Jesus, being united on mission, that We'll cure. And I don't think we have any infighting going on. We have different, we have different perspectives, different opinions, and, and that's okay. We can do that and be unified. But the, the, the antidote to fighting is mission. 
A gospel-worthy church is unified in its mission to advance the gospel. Now, what else? Look at verse 28. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Here's our second point this morning. A a gospel-worthy church is unafraid of cultural, political, and personal opposition. See, we're not, you know, in, in, in 2020 America, we're not the first group of believers to be marginalized. In fact, the church at Philippi was a group, was a, was a marginalized minority. Because of their commitment to Jesus Christ, the teaching of Christ, their commitment to the kingdom ethic, they, they thought and acted and believed very differently than their surrounding community. And because of that, they experienced opposition. The same is true for us today. If we, if we trust in Christ, if we come under the authority and the headship of Jesus Christ, and we believe that His teaching is authoritative, we will encounter opposition. And just think about the areas. Think about uh, the sacredness of human life. Before birth, from conception to death, we believe that all human life is sacred. Think about the biblical teaching on human sexuality and gender and marriage and family, we will encounter opposition. It just comes with being a follower of Christ. But Paul says that living in a manner worthy of the gospel means not being frightened by our opponents. And in fact, it is our lack of fear that will signal to a watching world they have a peace, they have a calmness, they have a comfort that's very unlike anything I have seen. Now, according to retired pastor and author Dennis Johnson, there are four ways that people respond when they're surrounded by angry, hostile voices. He uses four different animals. The first is the wolf. The first reaction is like that of a wolf. They get feisty and like a cornered beast, they attack. Maybe they, maybe they don't physically attack. Maybe they attack on social media. Maybe they attack in relationships, whatever it is. They, they go on the attack to those outside. The second one would be the turtle. The second reaction would be to get timid and pull back into a shell, withdraw from the world, move away, isolate from anybody who is, quote, of the world. And then as a turtle sort of retreating in its shell, having no involvement, no impact. A third would be the chameleon. This is the person who just agrees with everyone. If he's, if he's with one person and, and he believes something, and then another person, he just agrees with everyone, just sort of trying to blend in. The fourth is a pit bull, according to Johnson. They get frustrated, feel provoked, and then turn on each other. Now, if you're a pit bull owner, you can substitute any other dog breed and Southern California had two families who had multiple pit bulls, and so uh, I never said anything bad about pit bulls, uh, lest I be uh, attacked by a pit bull. So, I, so I, it could be any, any sort of dog you want, but this is the, the support that turns in on each other. So there's fighting within. Well, what is Jesus' way? You want to continue with this animal analogy. What is Jesus' way? Anybody remember what animals Jesus said we should remember? We should resemble, rather, when confronted with hostility. Matthew 10, when sending out his disciples, Jesus says this, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. 
So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. I'm going to continue the animal analogy. Here's what Christ calls us to be. Sheep who behave as wisely as serpents and as innocently as doves. Wise as serpents means we are careful. Uh, shrewd is another way to interpret that even in the way that we say things and how we say them. In what forum we say them. There's a certain uh, EQ, emotional intelligence, in the way that we engage others. I'm, I'm, I'm old, getting old enough now that younger pastors are reaching out to me and asking me about ministry situations, and I don't pretend to have all the answers. I, I, I rarely do, uh, but I had a great conversation just last week with a pastor who's really having some very difficult challenges related to COVID and reopening and different things. And um, what I'm finding is, is I, as young 20-somethings. In fact, I just got a text this morning, uh, 8 o'clock this morning from what. What I'm finding is that with a lot of, and it's, this is not just in recent seminary grads or, or even young pastors for that matter, but is that what's lacking is not necessarily theological knowledge, although certainly that is lacking in some areas. But what's often lacking is emotional intelligence. It's this recognition that there's a time to jump into the fray, and there's a time to stay out of it. There's a time to argue, defend, contend, and there's a time to listen, be quiet, and observe. Of course, this goes for all believers. To be wise means that we choose our battles. Not everything needs to be fought over. Some things do, of course, but not everything. Innocent as doves means not that we never offend. If we're actually proclaiming the gospel, we will offend because the gospel is offensive. When you talk about the exclusive claims of Jesus, the uniqueness of Jesus, it will be offensive. But what should never be offensive is our approach to people, the way that we love and engage people. Sometimes our message can be overshadowed, which is a message of what? Love and forgiveness and grace and mercy of God can be overshadowed by an obnoxious, defensive, argumentative posture. Now, again, doesn't mean we can never argue, but that we're not argumentative. Doesn't mean we can never defend. We're called to defend the faith, but that we're not defensive people. You know, some people, sadly, some Christians are more known for what they're against than what they actually believe. This should not be the case with those who understand grace. The image that Paul is, is going here for, if we're going to sort of link his words with Jesus' words, is we are sheep who are standing directly under the watch care and protection of our shepherd. And because of that, we don't need to be afraid. Because as Jesus will say in that same passage, we have a father who is, yes, he is the sovereign God, but he is an intimate and loving and caring Father who cares about every aspect of your life. If you are in Christ, you have a Heavenly Father who cares about every single little thing you're going through. There's nothing too small to bring to Him. There's nothing so little that He doesn't care about it. This is the nature of our Heavenly Father. In fact, as one old-time theologian says, God is engrossed with His people. I love that. God loves His people. The sovereign God who created the world 
is watching over and caring for his children whom he deeply loves, so we need not be afraid. As Jesus asked rhetorically, what's the worst thing that can happen? You die physically. Don't be afraid. Fear the one who can send body and soul to hell. So in other words, make sure you're trusting him. I mean, now look at verses 29 and 30. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul says these believers. So he, he's telling them some hard things, but he says you've got two gifts of grace here to look at. The first gift, Paul says, is that it has been granted you that you should believe in Christ. Here's our third point. A gospel-worthy church recognizes that faith is a gift. Even faith is a gift. So that transfer of citizenship from, from being a citizen of the kingdom of darkness, the domain of darkness, the kingdom of this world, and so on, the, this, this present age, to the kingdom of God's beloved Son, the kingdom of God, that transfer takes place only by faith. And Paul says, even that faith is a gift. And so all the things that are ours in Christ, our adoption, God looks at us as His very own children. The, Jesus is our brother. The, the God is our father. Our adoption, our justification, we're declared not guilty. Our sanctification, He's molding us into the image of God, chipping off those edges and making us more like Christ. Our perseverance in the faith, our ultimate glorification, all the riches that are ours in Christ are ours by faith alone. And Paul says even that, even faith is a gift. It has been granted to you to believe. Now, we're going to talk a lot more about that in, in chapter 2 and, and chapter 3 of Philippians um, because it will be the recognition of that faith, as we get into chapter 2, that actually enables us to live humbly and sacrificially with others, to live in unity with others, is the understanding that even faith is a gift. So, so the fact that I believe is not because I've got some spiritual uh, well-being or insight that no one else has, because I've been granted that, which necessarily leads to humility. But then Paul says in 29, not only has it been granted to us to believe, to them to believe, it has been granted to them the privilege of suffering. Paul will say elsewhere in 1 Timothy that to be a Christian is to suffer. But we think about that, and if we're honest with ourselves, we, we, don't we have to say, how, does that, how do we reconcile that with our own experience living in North America? We have nice homes, and we live well, and we eat well, and we have good friends, and we're not being, we're not being dragged out of our homes and persecuted. We're not being uh, physically beaten or imprisoned because of our faith. How many of us can say, well, I'm actually really suffering now for Christ? There was a man that uh, developed a very good friendship with a few years ago. Um, he was a bank president and a man who was very wealthy, extremely wealthy. In fact, I was with him one time when we had a missionary who visited from uh, the continent of Africa. And this missionary said, we're really behind, way behind on our finances for this ministry. And my friend, the bank president, I saw him right there, write a check to this guy for $64,000. He said, this is what you need. I'll cover it. Well, one time this, this guy, this bank president, came to me and said, he said, John, here's the thing. I just don't see it. I, I don't see how I'm, I'm suffering. I've got multiple houses. 
I eat well, I live well, my kids are healthy, they're college graduates, we have all that we need. How is it that I possibly could be described as suffering? And that really caused me to do some real thinking and research on my own. What does it mean to say we're suffering? I think the problem is that our view of suffering, we have a, we have a truncated view of suffering. I read an article recently by Richard Gaffin called The Usefulness of the Cross. And if you want to have your mind blown theologically, you, this article is free. You can Google it and you can read it online. It's actually a manuscript of a lecture that Gaffin delivered at Westminster Theological Seminary some 20 years ago. Anyway, in the article, Gaffin talks about participating in the suffering of Christ. Now, I want you to listen to what he said. It's, it's one of the longest, it's a long quote, one of the longer ones that I typically use, but it's so helpful. He says this, One reason we have a difficulty in seeing suffering as a given is that our understanding of the fellowship of His sufferings is too narrow and restricted. We tend to think only of persecution that follows on explicit witness to Christ or perhaps also intense physical suffering or economic hardships that may result from a stand taken for the gospel. Certainly those aspects should not be depreciated, he says, and are central in the New Testament. And we may well ask ourselves why it is so largely absent from the experience of most of us. But, and I really feel like I got taken to school in this. This was so helpful. The sufferings of Christ are much broader. They are the Christian's involvement in the sufferings of this present time. As the time of comprehensive subjection of the entire creation to futility and frustration, to decay and pervasive, enervating weakness, they are the believer's participation in what was a fundamental dimension of Christ's humiliation undergoing the miseries of this life, exposure to the indignities of this world, the infirmities of the flesh, the temptations of Satan. So you say, what in the world does that mean? In other words, we suffer as believers. We suffer for Christ as believers when we go through health issues, physical issues, emotional exhaustion, relational rejection, the decay of our bodies, pain, disease, and temptation. Not simply stoically or some self-centered way or some rebellious way, but we go through those struggles with the understanding that we are here on earth for one reason, to glorify Jesus Christ, and those sufferings are part of that experience. So in other words, when you experience a prolonged illness, and I talked to a guy just yesterday uh, whose, whose son is only in his early 30s, but has a chronic illness, a, a GI issue that means that he's always feeling nauseous and, and he's sick most of the time. If you go through a chronic illness, a prolonged sickness, with the understanding that this is part of, a part of living life on this sin-cursed earth for Christ's glory, you are participating in the suffering of Christ who himself went through physical uh, issues, exhaustion, fatigue, uh, it was worn out, and so on. Um, When you resist temptation, when you resist the temptation to sin, by the power of the Spirit, going through the agony of that resisting, if you've ever had this temptation that weighed on you 
and you just felt so compelled to indulge in it. You know the agony of resisting. If you resist that temptation to sin, you are participating in the suffering of Christ, who himself resisted the temptation to sin, only fully resisted and never sinned. So you think, man, my te- the temptation I'm going through to sin is so, so incredibly weighty and difficult. Christ experienced the temptation in the greatest way imaginable because he never actually caved in and sinned. When you suffer that way, when you suffer extreme exhaustion, just trying to keep your house right and to parent your kids and to keep your kids under control, whatever it is, and give time to your spouse, you are suffering for Jesus. When you understand these trials are born for Jesus and part of living in His service. You don't have to be rejected by your family. You don't have to be dragged out of your home and beaten. You don't have to be imprisoned to participate in Christ's suffering. Now, some of those things are going to happen. They're happening all over the world right now. But just living in a sin-cursed world in a way that recognizes that all the suffering we go through is born for Christ is participating in Christ's suffering. So here's the the fourth point here as it relates to a gospel-worthy church. A gospel-worthy church sees suffering comprehensively as all of life on a sin-cursed earth lived in service to Christ. So whenever we go through difficult, horrible, painful things, and we recognize God's sovereign design in those things, the same sovereign design that actually brought about the, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, we do those things in such a way that we recognize the beauty and glory of Christ, we are sharing in His suffering. Now, I want to go back and answer the question that I posed initially. How does the church remain unified and stand out in these turbulent times? It's actually the answer is made up by our four points. A church is, we do so, we stand out and remain unified by being uh, steadfast on mission, by being unafraid of opposition, by recognizing that even faith is a gift, which destroys even the hint of pride or self-righteousness, and by seeing suffering as comprehensive. Now, one final thought I want to make here as we, as we wrap this up, and I think it's so important because you might be inclined to think by the phrase, live in a manner worthy of the gospel, that in order to receive the gospel or to be granted God's forgiveness, a person has to make himself or herself worthy first. And let me say to you, As directly as I can, nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. No one is ever reconciled to God because he makes himself worthy of God's forgiveness. That that actually takes the gospel out of the equation altogether. The gospel is not good news for those who believe they've made it, they've succeeded, they're obedient, they're the upright person because they've not yet been crushed by the burden of the law. The gospel is not good news for those who believe they've cleaned themselves up first. Because who could ever clean himself up enough to stand in the presence of a holy God? The gospel is good news for the broken. The gospel is good news for the stained. The gospel is good news for the hopeless, for the rebellious. 
The gospel is good news for those with a long rap sheet of offenses against God. The gospel is good news for those who have let down their husband, let down their wife. The gospel is good news for those who are ashamed, who have nowhere else to turn. For those who have utterly failed to obey God and have fallen infinitely short of God's standard of perfection, which is everyone who has ever lived. Paul would say in another letter, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You don't have to make yourself worthy of the gospel. The gospel is specifically for the unworthy and those who realize it. So what does it mean then to live in a manner worthy of the gospel? It doesn't mean we have to clean ourselves up before we come to God. It doesn't mean we have to act in such a way so that God would forgive us. No, we come to God as the old hymn, Rock of Ages, naked, undressed, before God, undone, with nothing Nothing to offer God. Coming to Him based solely on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So then what does it mean to live in a manner worthy of the gospel? It just means to live in a way that actually gives credence to the beauty of the good news. It just means to live in such a way that gives evidence to, the, to, the, to a watching world that God actually is redeeming a lost world. God actually is forgiving. He is merciful. He is kind. It means to live in such a way that the crowning act of God's redemption in bringing lost, broken, sinful, and rebellious people back into relationship with Himself is made visible by our humility, by our dependence, by our transparency, by our brokenness, and by our unity. Our lives should reflect that. And that only happens, of course, by the power of the Spirit, as we saw last week, and through the prayers of God's people. And let's pray that God would bring it about even now. Father in heaven, will you give us the ability, by your grace, to be a people so overwhelmed with gratitude for your salvation that we don't look down our noses at other people, we don't look down condemning and judging other people, We simply look at other people as those who are created in your image and those who need to hear the good news of the gospel. And Father, will you help us to remember, even this morning, as we reflect on our own sinfulness and all the struggles and challenges of living in a a broken world, help us to remember that even though we are faithless, Even though we are fickle, even though we broke it and sin and try to hide our sin and we judge other people for their sins, even though we are faithless, great is your faithfulness, O God, our Father. Help us to believe it and to rest in it in Jesus Christ. Amen.